After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Those avid listeners among you will have observed that I like to think of myself as a British comedy buff. So what better way to spend the afternoon than in the presence of another? Celebrated writer and historian Robert Ross has become one of Britain's leading authorities on the history of British comedy, across a whole range of different mediums, from television, radio and print, most notably in his formidable works on the history of the Carry On franchise. I caught up with the British comedy guru to talk television, film and cultural icons. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Robert Ross. First question is an easy one. How do you get to become a comedy historian? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, my, my, my late dad was obsessed with comedy and um, when he was in the, the Royal Air Force, um, he was obsessed with the Goon Show on radio and he would, um, uh, and him and his mates would, would gather around the, the wireless, the radio, and if they laughed during the half hour, they would find a shilling and that money would be put into a pot and they would go and spend that in the naffy with beer because they could wonder every single moment of that show. Um, and so my dad really used to tape um, uh, reel to reel of, of the Hancock's Half Hours and the Navy Lark and radio comedies. So I was weaned on, on British comedy particularly. Radio comedy was the main thing. Um, uh, so I suppose I, I, I grew up wanting to be a writer, um, but not necessarily writing new comedy, but, but celebrating stuff I loved. So this place, we're now in the Museum of Comedy. Yeah. This is my sort of, my, my haven. I love Mac, this place. Macca. Oh, this is, I mean, look around you, right? The, these, these skulls here were from, I wrote a play about Marty Feldman uh, a couple of years ago, and these skulls were, were, were recreated from Young Frankenstein. So that's from a play I wrote like Ernie Wise, a play what I wrote. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, and, and my first book was, was published in 1996. It was called Carry On Companion. Um, and it took me about seven, eight years to get a publisher for that. Wow. And I pushed and pushed and pushed. I got so many rejection letters. I could wallpaper this room in rejection letters. <laughs> um, but I persevered. And, and once, once my, I get letters from people to this day, sort of teenagers saying, how do you get into writing? How do you get into being a published author, whatever. And it's what Ray Galton and Alan Simpson told me, the guys that wrote Tony Hancock and, mm-hmm. and, and Steptoe and Son. They wrote to Dennis Norden and Frank Muir, and they just said, persevere, just write and write and write, and never take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. And I just never took no for an answer. So once you get your foot in the door, you're in. So I did the book on the carry-ons, and I did the book on Monty Python and Benny Hill and... Uh, and I've yeah been writing books and and doing DVD commentaries and all that ever since really. So it's been it's been a charmed life. But you know you look back and think God I was I was so lucky. But I I did I did graft. Yeah, put in the work. Yeah, in. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've created a substantial body of work surrounding the Carry On franchise. What is it about this comedy group which remains so important to me? Or, or to, 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 to yeah. 
Over, overall, to to Britain, to Britain, yeah. to Britain. Um, I think in a way you're 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 sort of born in this country, and and before you're too old, you will see Barbara Windsor losing her bra in Carry On Camping. It's almost like a rites of passage, really. And I think um, the Carry Ons, for all their yeah, inexpensive budgets and 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 their sort of very short shooting schedules. There's something about those films that the actors were so well cast and they took all those corny jokes from Music Hall and, and Variety and, and saucy, you know, Donald McGill postcards. And when you bung a load of pros like Sid James and Kenneth Connor and Kenneth Williams and Hattie Jakes together, it just, it just sort of works. And I think you watch them now. And, and, and as I said on the, on the show this afternoon with, with Jeff, there are certain jokes you wouldn't crack in 2019 but the same about the carry-ons that just they, they sort of get away with it somehow. Uh, there's a real innocence under that innuendo, and uh, I just think yeah, they're here forever, really. I mean, you know, we are we are an island race, and, and we love we love talking about sex and joking about bodily functions, and uh, and it's just it's just carry on. Well, you know, that's what makes us laugh, and I think as I say, they're here forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Such a diverse cast of characters, and yet a strong nucleus at the core. I'm thinking of Sid James, Barbara Windsor, Charles Haltry, etc. In what ways was this crucial to its success? Uh, yeah, the, the producer Peter Rogers would have told you that, that the star was the name Carry On, and I always disputed that because, as you say, Josh, I think uh, those actors were crucial to it. But then you look at the very first film, Carry On Sergeant, the star is William Hartnell, who never came back for one. Bob Monkhouse never came back for another one. Um, very quite low down the cast list. You had Kenneth Connor and Charles Walter and, and Kenneth Williams and Hattie Jakes, who became the core of Carry On. And I think um, that's that's the issue. I think if you if you if when you had a, a team of 10, 12 people, if you had six of those names, if you had if, if Sid was if Sid James missed one, that was okay because you had like Harry H. Corbett came in to sub on Carry On Screaming, for example, or if Kenneth Williams missed one, you had Frankie Howard to come yeah. in to sub. But you always had about five or six of those recurring people, even if it was like Kenneth Connor or Peter Butterworth. Yeah, th those, and as I say, respect to the producer, um, for me, the Carry Ons are those actors, really. Um, and, and if they ever came back, which they always talk about bringing them back, um, you'd have to sort of, Tip your hat to those people because they were they were just brilliant, you know. And, uh, but they were they were born of like the rep theatres. They were born of, of radio comedy. Um, they'd worked together a lot. Obviously, Hancock's Half Hour, Sid James, Kenneth Williams, Hattie Jenks. So so before the Carry Ons came along, they they known each other as a, as a sort of working unit, you know. So it's uh, yeah yeah. But yeah, love them, love those actors. Well, one of the most <coughs> fascinating examples of the generation shift in comedy was the 1992 Carry On Columbus. In what ways did this signify the new age of British comedy? You naughty boy. Um, Columbus was an interesting one because Columbus sort of came about at the wrong time, really. If, I always say if Christopher Columbus had got his skates on and had discovered America 20 years earlier, they would have cast Sid James as Columbus and they would have cast Jim Dell as his, as his younger brother, Bart, yeah. and it would have been a classic carry-on. And, and verbatim, that script that Dave Freeman wrote was, was okay. It wouldn't be a classic carry-on, but it was okay. 
uh, and looking, I watched it again maybe a year ago, and it's okay. It, it, and some of the young guys, I'm working with Tony Slattery quite a lot now, and some of them like Tony Slattery and, and uh, uh, Rip Mayle, um, Alexi Sale, they really got it, they got it. Others less so, um, but I think, you know, it's hard to believe now, as you say, 1992, it's 27 years ago. That's a long time, you know, that seems now, if you ask the person in the street, that's a new carry-on, it's not really, it's nearly 30 years ago. Um, but directed by Gerald Thomas, who did the previous 30 films, um, I, 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 some people sort of condemn it, they don't, they don't count it as a carry-on, I, I do. I, 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 I enjoy it um, on, on a repeat visit. I was on the set for, for a day or two with that as well, so I've got fond memories of, of meeting Jim Dale on the set of that, that, that um, ship and, uh, and Jack Douglas and uh, uh, Bernard Cribbins and people. So, yeah, I've got, I've got a soft spot for that film. But, uh, yeah, no. it's not everybody's favourite. Let's put it that way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, beyond Carry On, you've written books about Sid James and Benny Hill, to name but a few. Mm. Now, everyone knows the alleged sexism attributed to Benny Hill, and I guess it's not for us to pass judgment, but what happened at that fateful meeting at Thames when Benny's and his producer, Dennis Kirkland, went in to see John Howard Davies? Was the decision to sack Benny purely based on political correctness over commercial success, or had Benny's career truly run its course? <coughs> no, I think totally, Josh, I think you're right. I think it was, it was totally political correctness. Uh, and Benny lived another three years or two and a half years and he, he really was a broken man because of that. Because don't forget, in 1992 when Benny died, you could see the Benny Hill show in every country, pretty much in the world apart from this one. <laughs> you know, because, because it was, a, and the same year that Carry On Columbus was made, you know, the same year Frankie Howard died. 92 was quite a pivotal year in comedy really, that we were, we were so running scared of, of, of that sort of knockabout, innuendo-based comedy, um, and Benny was one of those casualties, really. Um, and I think, for me, he was he was one of the great clowns. He's up there with Chaplin and Keaton for me. But Benny Hill, at his finest, and Dennis Kirkland, when he was directing him really well, was 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 a brilliant director for him. But I think you know if they had, if they had dropped the the, the the girls a bit earlier, because um, in the nineteen eighties. But this is why he was big in America. Because in the 1980s, when, when shows like the Jackie Gleason show had, had, had run its course, or the Dean Martin show, who used chorus girls and glamour girls in those sketches, suddenly Benny Hill came from England to America, and they thought, God, this is like the old days, this is great, it's like the 60s again. So, so when he died, Benny was massive in America. I mean, he was a, a friend of Frank Sinatra and Burt Reynolds and Hugh Hefner and Mickey Rooney and all these great American stars, Greta Garbo and people. Um, so, yeah, I think I think his career could have gone a bit longer if if they moderated the the, the, the the women a bit earlier. But I mean, the the last couple of years, if you look at the the last couple of years of the Benny Hill show, they replaced the Hills Angels with Hills Little Angels, which were like the kids of the production crew. Um, so he became like this sort of chaplain figure, you know, like, like in the kid, he was like sort of playing this lovable old grandfather or lovable old uncle character. Uh, with with children, which again, I suppose now could even be more problematic. Mm. But but in 1992, that was quite quite cute. And I think if they'd done that a, a year or two earlier, that might have saved his career. But no, for me, he's one of the one of the greats. I I, I adore Benny Hill. So uh, not a sexist comic at all, <laughs> on record. Yeah, <coughs> <coughs> 
you think that gets left at Ben Elton's door? Ah, that's a good a good question, yeah. Uh, ben Elton, um, I suppose, in, in comedy, like a lot of popular culture, be it rock and roll or be it, be it poetry or anything, I think the young the young pretender that comes along um, who 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 um, beats the old guys down and Ben Elton was definitely a person who was trying to be politically correct and a bit of politics, a bit of politics and the, the sparkly suit and all that. Um, and he did an amazing sketch on the Harry Enfield and Chum show when he played Benny Elton and he did this sort of parody, uh, uh, just a bit of politics, a bit of politics, and doing a sort of spoof of Benny Hill. Um, and I know Ben really well and, and he, he, he feels a, a tinge of guilt about it it wasn't his fault though mm. you know one one comedian can't bring another comedian down it was definitely ITV and, and Philip Jones's decision that um, they didn't want to be associated with that so-called sexist comedy but I think I think Ben Elton accepts that he might have sown that seed a bit um, but you know I mean it's, as I say comedy you know the king is dead long live the king it's um, it's uh, alternative comedy and I mean you know I was born in the 70s and, and my my contemporary heroes were people like Ben Elton like Rick Mayall like Aid Edmondson um, but I also loved Benny Hill and Frankie Howard and the Carry On guys so I was I was between two stalls really and I still think to this day you can enjoy both you know yeah. but but no don't, you, you can't you can't blame Ben it was definitely ITV's decision yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you'd think Doctor Who would never have any sort of correlation with British comedy <coughs> But of course, with Terry Nation working at Associated London Scripts, the two worlds collided to some extent. Mm. In what ways did this give Doctor Who a harder edge? Ooh, it's a harder edge? I don't know. Terry Nation obviously was writing for, for Tony Hancock, and, and as you say, um, Associated London Scripts had on their books Spike and Eric Sykes and Johnny Spate and those people, Golden and Simpson. Um, I think... I think there's a, there's a lightness of touch to Doctor Who sometimes, but unlike any any sci-fi show, Doctor Who can do anything. It's done a Western, it's done, you know, horror, it's done sort of a historical pageant, it's done uh, almost a farce sometimes. There was a, a wonderful early um, serial um, starring William Hartnell, um, written by Dennis Spooner, uh, called The Romans, which is almost like a carry-on Cleo, really. Um, so Doctor Who is... Is a, is a very loose-fitting format that you can go anywhere with, really. Um, but, uh, no, I think, I think Terry Nation was very proud to have, 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 have created the Daleks, but I think probably happier writing for Frankie Howard and, and Tony Hancock. You know, they, 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 were, good, they were good days. And, um, but he died a very wealthy man because of well, the Daleks. So there you <laughs> go. But there. <coughs> Your other great love is Monty Python and the Goodies. Mm -hmm. To what extent did both of these comedy groups owe their success to David Frost and the Frost Report? Well, uh, yes, David Frost um, was 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 a brilliant uh, mind, political mind and comedy mind. But he was very good at um, uh, at finding, a bit like Frank Sinatra, I suppose. He found really good people to surround himself with. Mm -hmm. So he would go to like Cambridge or Oxford and, and pick up these wonderful people. So without David Frost, there's no question, you know, and the Frost Report, you had the five British-based Pythons, not Gilliam, but the five British guys, all three goodies, Marty Feldman, John Law, I mean, you know, Peter Tinnerswood, they were, they were great writers. Um, so he was like a sort of catalyst for those people. The two Ronnies, of course, you know. Um, so, so yeah, Eric Idle was certainly 
wasn't his biggest fan, but he always maintains without David Frost, you wouldn't have had Python or mm. all, all the goodies. But then again, without Barry Took, you know, he sort of brought them together. They were both both groups. Uh, uh, John Cleese and Graham Chapman was doing were doing a show called At Last, a 1948 show with Marty Feldman and Tim Brooke Taylor and uh, Terry Jones and Eric Idle and Michael Palin and late, latterly Terry Gilliam were doing a sort of a, a pseudo kids show called Do Not Adjust Your Set. So they sort of, Barry took to sort of put these two groups together and, and then became Python. Um, so, but, but there's a wonderful uh, sort of comedy family tree uh, work there with those people because they were all working together before Python and the goodies came together. And they're all friends, and you know they still are friends. I mean, and, and they and when they reunite, which is occasionally, uh, it's it's sort of like you know, comedy sort of colossus. Mm. You know, it's it's very exciting. But yeah, but I think David Frost certainly was the catalyst, and the two Ronnies. I mean, that was the thing. You know, you had Ronnie Corbett and Ronnie Barker. They were just part of that group, and they were just oh, where the, where the two Ronnies? Where the two Ronnies? And they was like, oh, well, that's that's a good title for a show. The two Ronnies, right? Um, so. Um, Brilliant, brilliant sort of. David Frost was this person that just just recognised talent when he saw it and, and 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 gave it a chance to shine. So he allowed them to hit TV and become famous. So yeah, cheers, David. Bless well, <coughs> looking back at your career, what is your proudest achievement? Oh God. Um, Well, it's a I think achievement is a is a, a, a grand, too grandiose thing of uh, way of putting it. But I mean, I've I've been very fortunate um, to turn my love of comedy over the last twenty twenty three years now in, into a sort of career. You know, I pay my mortgage and I, I pay my bills and I meet my heroes. I'm doing the show with Jeffrey Hon today, and and um, I think I think probably a t a two two things. When I was a kid in the 70s, my absolute comedy heroes were the goodies. And I, I spent probably my first 10 or 12 years just wanting to say thank you and shake their hand and say thanks for the laugh sort of thing. So on, my, on the eve of my 30th birthday, 23rd of May 2000, I was on the stage of the National Film Theatre, one, sold out and I introduced all three goodies and I really built it up. I, I did it in alphabetical order, Tim Brooke Taylor, then Graham Garden, and then Bill Oddie. And the, the applause was just mounting and mounting. When I mentioned Bill and the three were together, the place just went ballistic. And I thought, this, I can sort of die happy now. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've got them back together again and I'm on stage with them to interview them for like two hours and show an episode yeah. or whatever. So that was, that was absolutely, you know, heart-stopping. Um, and the other thing, my, my, my heroes as, as comedy writers, the governors were Ray Goldman and Adam Simpson, as I mentioned before, Hancock's Half Hour and Steptoe. And I wrote a book about Steptoe with Ray and Alan. Um, went around Ray Goldman's house and Alan was there and we hang out and hung out and we were, like we were doing now, recorded the conversation and stuff. So a BBC, a, an official BBC book on Steptoe and Son, you know, Ray Goldman, Alan Simpson and Robert Ross, um, that's... that's Probably the proudest thing mm -hmm. on my shelf. That yeah, I'm 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 with I'm with my two comedy writing heroes. So that's it. Yeah. Finally, what's next for Robert Ross? Well, I'm doing another show with Jeffrey Holland at seven o'clock. Um, I'm I'm very very lucky. I mean, um, 
the Carry On franchise has always been talked about in terms of repackaging, and, and so I'm working on that again with, with um, uh, the, the Carry On uh, owners, which is exciting. Uh, I'm working a lot of cruises. I met Jeff on a cruise last October, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, 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 my solo, I call myself a stand-up comedy historian. I go out and just like chat for an hour, an hour and 20 minutes and show some clips and things. Um, and I'm working um, this year's Edinburgh Fringe okay. um, throughout most of August with Tony Slattery, uh, the, the great improv comedy, comedian. So I'm doing a show with him called Slattery Will Get You Nowhere. Um, and I'm also doing my own show called Forgotten Heroes of Comedy, um, which is my new book, which is coming out next year um, with a forward by Terry Jones, which is a big old, like 180,000 words, sort of celebration of all these variety comedians mm. and silent comics and all that so so it's all it's all comedy i'm i'm so i i'm i'm, I'm plowing the same field but in a different way if mm. that makes sense but it's, um plenty in the pipeline still working but yeah thank you thank you <laughs> touch wood touch wood yeah all right that's good yeah. thank you very much My pleasure thank you very much to our guest for being the subject of another beyond the title interview if you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.